Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Functionally Literate. I am Ryan. And I'm Zach. And today, we're discussing Chinese mythology. I don't know why I opened it weird like that, but I liked it. You know, um, I hope they appreciate the variety. I think that when we are doing this, we should always seek to have a little bit of variety. Otherwise, we'll get bored. And Sorry if that was weird, guys. And as we've, discuss- <laughs> as, as we've discussed in our last episodes about Buddhism, it's very important to stave off boredom. Hmm. I don't know if that was the lesson Buddhism had. I think actually the lesson they had was boredom will eventually come. Yeah, boredom is inevitable. That's yeah. what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, your craving of entertainment is the bad. problem. Get rid of that. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> we've learned nothing. Sorry, <laughs> Buddhists. We're the same idiots we've always been. Fuck. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, this week uh, we're discussing Chinese mythology. Moving so on to China. Just I want to give credit to uh, Digistory Productions for making this possible. I want to give credit to uh, VidWest for letting us use their space. Mm-hmm. Thanks, VidWest. And they also made this possible. They do. Digistory provides some of the equipment we're using. VidWest provides some of the equipment we're using. It's really not for us to figure out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you to uh, Chris, our sound guy, for setting this all up. And thank you, currently Chris. actively recording our stuff. And thank you to Jake Weller for our intro and outro music. Thanks, Jake. You're so good at that. This so is great. Stupid good. Um, if you like Jake's intro and outro, be sure to listen to Wasting Time. That is where the inspiration for our intro and outro came from. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always forget who who does all the editing and stuff. I just oh, it just oh shit, shows man. up. That's me. I do that. Oh, hey, thanks, man. You're welcome. Yeah, it just shows up on my phone. I'm like, oh, look at this. Look at this. Someone it's made just that. done. Yeah, it's, it's super easy. It's just stuff done. I don't know why more people don't do this. Yeah. So easy. So easy. <laughs> Everybody has a podcast except you. That's right. Pretty good book. It is a pretty good book. It's a pretty good book. I like it. Sidebar. We are in the Midwest space, which means that uh, it's not as private as usual. Unfortunately, there are other people in the space. It's so a communal weird, area. If you hear weird stuff in the background... Sorry about that. There are some very nice people doing a photo shoot. There are some very nice people doing a photo shoot. They look quite nice. They do. Anyways, Chinese mythology. So we are both reading from the same (laughs) book today. Um, All the stories that we are discussing are coming from Chinese myths and folktales. This is a Barnes & Noble original. It is the collections of a few different texts that were from... Uh, you know, pre, what's the word I'm looking for? Public domain. This is all public domain stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, so <laughs> it all came from, from a time that would be considered the public domain now. Uh, strange stories from a Chinese studio. Mm-hmm. Those are all very good. Chinese very folk tales and Chinese fairy tales. Also, tales of saints and magicians, ghost stories. Historic legends. So, uh, so yeah, that's what we've got. Um, my one of my stories is gonna come from the uh, strange tales from a Chinese studio, and also I believe um, historic legends. Mm. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So I will be telling the story of Guan Yu. Yep, God of War. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be talking about a, I'm going to talk about a funny story about a necromancer called Magical Arts. And I'm also going to talk about the Immortal Eight. I have a couple stories about the Immortal mm-hmm. Eight. The Immortal Eight are fun. I like that. Yeah. I think, uh, oh, what's his name? Is it Lee with the Iron Crutch? Yeah. I like Lee. A Lee with Lee's the Iron dope. Crutch. He's good. Yeah. <clears throat> that was my favorite of the Eight Immortals. Yeah. So you start this off. Okay, we'll start with old Guan Yu. Uh, he's God of War, also known as Guan Di, uh, also called by his friends Duke Fairbeard. Duke Fairbeard. He has a very nice beard. It's very fair. Uh, <laughs> at some point, even the emperor gives him a little silk pouch in which to put his beard. So a lot of times you'll see like idols of uh, uh, Guan Yu have him with his beard in a little pouch. He have like almost like a little bag. On his chin. That's his beard tied up in his nice silk pouch. That reminds me of uh, 
those those like knitted containers that they have on like Instagram or Pinterest. <laughs> yeah. That's I, I always imagine just like a smaller crown royal bag. <laughs> <laughs> that one little, drawstring bag little, everybody a has. A little purple crown royal, yeah, like yeah, yeah. small. Real yeah, yeah, small. Just a little one. Beard. It was for a crown royal shooter. <laughs> it's a fashion choice. So Fairbeard. Uh, Duke Fairbeard. Um, he's not just the god of war. He's also the god of brotherhood. Okay. Wealth. Mm. Justice and protection. Uh, I think he, he's commonly uh, revered by merchants. Okay. Which will become clear in the story. Uh, he rode a red horse. Mm-hmm. His face was red. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times in like plays and stuff, you'll also see that he's got bright red face. Not just like, and I don't mean like he's just, a, he's blushing. I mean, his face is candy apple red. Um, he converts to Buddhism after his death as most Chinese gods tend to do. Uh, but he was revered in Taoism and Confucianism. So, yeah, I should mention there. So it's pretty common in Chinese mythology when people die, typically they then ascend to godhood and they're mm-hmm. given a... So in uh, in Chinese mythology, there's a whole godly administration Yes. And so usually when you die and you're ascended to godhood, that title comes with a job. Yes. You are <laughs> required to work. Yeah. Um, and that's generally just, you know, like the Joseph Campbell thing where the religion and the cosmology justifies the social. Um, the argument there is that the social mirrors the cosmic, right? Because if that's what heaven looks like, then... Obviously, that's perfect, and we should try to do that here, too, and that's why that's what Earth looks like. And so their heaven is this big bureaucratic administrative state. And that's where Confucianism so, comes in, right? Right. Yeah. And so that's why <clears throat> in China, the, well, obviously, the ideal is a big bureaucratic administrative state. It just makes sense. That's what heaven's like. Why wouldn't it be the same here? Are we sure that's heaven? <laughs> it is to them. <laughs> um, so... The story of Guan Yu starts during the Rebellion of the Yellow Turbans. All right. I don't know what that is. I have no historical frame of reference for that. Uh, it seemed to have been a pretty widespread conflict. Let's though. assume before Christ. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, B.C. or B.C.E. Um, before Christ era. He, he had actually left home to join the military and sure. was turned away. Why? I don't remember the specifics of why. He okay. was just told he couldn't join. So he was kind of dejected. He was on his way back home. He meets a guy named Chang Fei. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. It's like Shang or Chang or whatever. It's D-S-C-H-A-N-G Fei. I don't know how to pronounce it. I feel like it's safe to assume that D is silent. Yeah, so Chang Fei. Uh, and they sort of travel together for a little bit. He's like, wow, you seem really down. And he tells him, I tried to join the military, but they wouldn't let me. So he just kind of shares his, his complaints. He tried to join the military, but they didn't let him. And he's bummed out. Now he's heading home. And Chang Fei was like, well, I know a guy. You should meet him. He's pretty rad. So he takes him to meet a man named uh, Liu Bei, who you will find out later is the rightful emperor. Oh, shit. Um, and these three make a pact of brotherhood. Um, they go to a peach orchard uh-huh. and sacrifice a white steed what? to sanctify their pact. Why are they doing that? What? Wait, it's a horse, though. You don't... That's right. They sacrifice a horse. Okay. It's, it's not uncommon. The, the most common sacrificial animals are bulls, horses, and pigs. Those are the three that are, are most often Bulls, used as sacrifices. horses, and pigs. Yeah. Okay. I see a lot of that. Um, so they make this, this pact of brotherhood. Like, no matter what happens, we are each other's brothers. We will look out for each other. Lovely. Um, now, Liu Bei is like the leader of one of these factions in this war. This rebellion of the Yellow Turbans. <clears throat> one of the other leaders is a man named Cao Cao. Sao Sao. Sao Sao. We should not uh, make fun, but... I'm not it. making fun of it. I it's just a, like... It's fun to say. Sao Sao. Sao Sao. It's fun to say. It's a cool name. Um, 
he incites the enemies of the emperor, Liu Bei, uh, to take a city that assumably is under their control. And Guan Yu's like, well, fuck, I got to go help. That's my brother, right? We, ju- we just we made this just pact. We just made this pact. So he rushes horse. off to help him. He gets ambushed. It was all a trap. They just wanted Guan Yu. Uh, and gets captured along with his son, Guan Ping. Mm. So they catch him both. His captor tends to persuade him, you know, to switch sides. Uh, but it, it doesn't work. He's like, nah, I'm not going to switch sides. Now, there's this longer version of it where he gets captured by one guy. And he's like, hey, join my side. And he goes, no, I'm not going to join your side. But, like, Lu Bei was in the ambush. He's like, well, maybe Lu Bei's dead. So, like, I'll be on your side until I figure out what happened to Lu Bei. And then I'm out. I'm back with him as soon as I figure it out. The guy was like, yeah, sure. And then he leaves and he's upset and he's like, ah. Guan Yu's trying to be as ethical as possible here. Right, right. And so then he gets captured again by Cao Cao um, with his son. Cao Cao's also like, change sides. And Guan Yu's like, no. No. <laughs> I'm not, no. not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I've already sworn to Lu Bei and he's alive, so <clears throat> No. And so Louvay's my bro. That's right. And so to punish him, he's like, well, I'll kill your son. And he goes, I mean, fuck it. I'm still not switching sides. So he decapitates his son. He's like, now switch sides. He goes, you just killed my son. Why would I do that? That's so stupid. And so then they decapitate Guan Yu. So they punish him for it. Yeah. Um, Now, Guan Yu has a castle because he's a lord at this point. I mean, he's best friends with the rightful emperor. He's got money. He's got influence. He's got an army. Uh, his captain, uh, Chao Tsang, was at this keep with his other men and some followers, including his red horse, his very famous horse, all of whom die when they find out that Guan Yu has been killed. Yeah, it was like thousands of people. Yeah. It was like they, an arrow was They just die. Yeah, they die of grief. His horse actually just wanders off a cliff because horses can't commit suicide they can't you know just like cut their own throat or anything like that he's a horse so the horse just runs off a cliff kills himself like a lemming right so everybody's super sad side note lemmings don't actually jump off cliffs and kill themselves they do if you chase them (laughs) yeah that's what disney did disney chased a bunch of lemmings off a cliff for a nature documentary it's tragic yeah, and why put that in the nature documentary if it's not real? That doesn't, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like to, it makes a lot of sense. But anyway. not the point. Uh, the red horse did, in fact, lemming himself, even though <laughs> that's a sort of misnamed phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this is where he gets sort of incorporated into Buddhism. Later, he will appear as a ghost to a Buddhist monk uh, at or in the hills of the Jade Fountain, which is a very important spot in China, <clears throat> demanding his head. So what they had done Sensible. when they killed Guan Yu is they didn't bury his body and his head together because oh. that would have been too honorable. Oh. They wanted to piss everybody off, so they shipped his body back to his family, uh-huh. but they kept his head. What they do with it? And they took his head, and they buried it under the lintel of the palace of Cao Cao so that every time he went in and out of his home, he would step on Guan Yu's head. What the Just to fuck. continuously disrespect him. Super S- fucked up. Just buried <laughs> under the steps to the front entrance. Yeah. So that everyone that came in would step on Guan Yu's head. That, now that is next level disrespect. Yeah, I'm impressed. Yeah, and, that's creative. And Guan Yu was a loved man. Like in the cities that he had uh, lorded over, he was very strict on crime, sure. which made him very popular with merchants. Which is why he's also the god of wealth. Well, that would be because a popular would, move with the merchants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were caught stealing, it was like capital punishment. It's like, no, you don't steal. Jesus. Um, and so it's even it's even fairly common today for uh, stores in China to have little pictures of Guan Yu in them hmm. as a sign of protection. Makes sense. Um, little charm. Yeah. So he appears as this ghost, this Buddhist monk, in the hills of the Jade Fountain, demanding his head. He's like, I want my head back. And the monk, in typical Buddhist fashion, says, yeah, but you killed a lot of people. <laughs> like, you were a general in a war of, like, five different factions. Just so many people dead. There's a lot of people that don't have their heads. 
because of you. So it'd be very unfair for you to be so upset about it now and to get what you want when these men that you've killed by decapitation that don't have their heads can't ask for their head back and definitely won't get it. That's pretty fucked up. And at that moment, Guan Yu attains enlightenment, converts to Buddhism, and is like, oh, you're right. I'm obviously in the wrong here. Now I, must, I get... I must root out my greed. Right. He, he <laughs> needs to, to see his own flaws there and go, ah, my desire is at the root of this, and I need to just rip that out. Right. Um, so he is enlightened, he accepts Buddha, and he becomes the immortal master of war. Now, he's seen oftentimes as a sort of the opposite side of the coin of Confucius, where Confucius is the master of politics, yeah. which is the art of getting along. And he is the immortal master of war, which is what happens when you don't get along. <laughs> and so it's like you try the Confucius way. And if that doesn't work, we'll flip that coin. We'll go the Guan Yu route. Damn. So that's the story of Guan Yu. Um, today, he's actually still more revered than Confucius is. Really? Yeah. So I looked it up. Confucius, to this day, has about 30,000 active temples and shrines. Okay. That's quite a few. But China's a big place. It's massive. Guan Yu has over 300,000. Jesus. So he has 10 times the number of temples and shrines. There's an entire city in China. It, I don't know if China would consider it a city. Maybe they consider it a town. It's small. But it's a big place. All of people that claim to be descendants of Guan Yu. They've got a tower built to him. There's a shrine and a temple in there. And they have this logbook that's supposed to be like this genetic, this genealogical record where it's like it shows how every single one of them is linked back to Guan Yu. Hmm. So this is very much still like a known, respected, and revered deific figure or historical figure, at least, in China. Unrelated. But you got me thinking about <coughs> genealogical logbooks. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, I'm a direct descendant of one of the people that rode over on the Mayflower. That's pretty cool. I, I say supposedly because my grandmother was a member of this women's group. Mm -hmm. You could only be a member if they could verify that you were a direct descendant yeah. from the Mayflower. So I'm a man. Yeah. I don't know what this group is, but I remember my grandmother bragging about it. So therefore, I am also right, right. a direct descendant. I didn't it took me a while to make that leap of logic like, oh, she's a direct descendant. So therefore, therefore I, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to a friend about it and it's like, man, I wish I could verify that. And it's like, what do you mean? Why would you do? your grandmother is? Yeah. You're your you're your you're her grandson. Yeah. Obviously, if she's recognized as verified, then oh. all you have to do is show birth certificates like, look. And it's like, oh. Yeah. I don't you need to do too. that. I, it's good enough. This, the knowledge is is yeah, all yeah. I need. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah. I have no idea when my family immigrated. Yeah. On my, I think my grandma's side, the farthest back we could trace it is to a Canadian man named Amos Colby. Okay. And I think he came into the United States sometime in the 18-teens. Interesting. And settled in Kansas. That's all I got. That's all you got? That's it. It's all right. It's I pretty mean, unexciting. Some people don't even have that. That's true. So the uh, the story that I have, <clears throat> the first story that I have that I want to tell, it's really amusing. That's what, It's why I wanted to tell it. It's called Magical Arts. So there's this guy, Mr. Yu. Y-U with like an umlaut mm -hmm. above the U. So Mr. Yu, he, um, I believe he was a merchant mm -hmm. and he... You know, he was a pretty well-to-do man. He was rich enough to have a servant. His servant got sick. And in in this time, uh, you know, you if you had a servant, you were responsible for your servant's well-being. So right. he was like, ah, oh, shit, well, okay. I guess I better call on the local necromancer to solve this problem. Yes. Like you do. As, as one does, yeah. <laughs> That's but, what I do. Anytime I got a problem, I call my younger brother. 
<laughs> hey, I need your help. Does he play a necromancer in your campaign? Religiously. <laughs> Every campaign he's ever played in, wizard, necromancy school. That's all he wants to Seriously? Play. Yes. Different the only, characters? The only time, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the only time he's played not that was when he played a character from the backstory of one of those necromancers. <laughs> where he was like, because one of his part of his story was that his older brother had died, and that's what got him into necromancy because he idolized his older brother. Okay, I'm trying not to read into that Freudian. I'm like, are you saying you wish I was dead? <laughs> um, but so he like he played in a very short campaign, the dead older brother. So okay. that campaign was gonna be like the story of his life and then him dying. Oh, okay, so like he made that character. To kill it at the end. Right. The only non-necromancer character he ever played. He's like, I want him dead. By the, I want him dead. By the end of this campaign. Damn. Okay. You got a fixation there, guy. Never branches out. No. And see, meanwhile, my wife is like, listen, I'm tired of you playing Warlocks. You got to branch out. (laughs) I'm tired. Like, listen, be something else. He's like, all right, fine. Warlocks are so fun. Warlocks are so fun. Do the thing, Bart. Eldritch Blast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, anyways, Mr. Yu, he calls on a necromancer. This necromancer comes to his house, looks over his servant, says to Mr. Yu, your servant's going to be fine. You, though, you're going to die in three days. And he's like, well, shit. Fuck. I'm going to die in three days, you know, has a little bit of an existential crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, you, someone's like, I am actually pretty sure you're going to die. Uh, you're like, oh, well, that's, I need, I have things I need to take care of. This is a problem. Yeah. And so, but the necromancer says all is not lost, says to him, I have a charm I can give you that will save your life. You just got to give me all this money in exchange for it. And Mr. Yu refuses. Because he's like, you can't change fate. If I am fated to die, I will face my death. Right. And so he spends the next three days. You know, he turns the necromancer away. He spends the next three days making arrangements. You know, saying his final goodbyes. Making sure his will is all up to snuff the way he wants it. The third day. That night. He kneels. In his home, in the in the family room, and he has his sword with him, and he waits. He's not ill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't know how he's going to die, but he can guess. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I mean, unless there's some tragic accident in my sleep, but, like, I'm just gonna... I'm... Well, and that's that's the... I would say that's the brave thing to do. If you know you're gonna die... Meet death head on. Head on. Yeah. So, he's waiting, and he hears something at the window. Some weird scratching. He can't quite identify what it is. It's dark. He turns, looks at the window, and he sees this tiny man. Just this tiny man at the window, leaps at him. The little man has his own little sword. The man is made of paper. Yeah. And so, yeah, he fights this little paper man. Dude's <laughs> cutting him up. And, and he gets a lucky slice and cuts the paper man in half. Oh, man. I'm imagining that scene from Princess Bride. Yeah. Which one? With with, with Wesley and Inigo. Okay. Fencing back and forth. Oh, yeah. Their little, their little dialogue. But just with a tiny little paper guy. <laughs> instead of Wesley. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That'd be awesome. So, uh... I want that scene. I want to see it. So the night continues. He stays awake. You know, he's fated to die. Mm-hmm. He's like... He's certain that something is gonna conti- continue to try to kill him. He's then attacked by a hobgoblin. First paper guy. Now, a hobgoblin. A hobgoblin. Yeah. Just now, are, is this hobgoblin? Is it small? Is it normal sized? Uh, What's the stature of a hobgoblin? It doesn't is? specify, but you know, if I'm going by D and D rules, it's it's small. 
Okay. It's not a paper man small. No, no, it's a little bit bigger than a paper man. Uh, yeah, so this hobgoblin attacks him. He defeats the hobgoblin. The hobgoblin busted his door down, though, so he's pretty exposed. Wow, rude. Yeah, yeah it's raining. Um, and then in through the rain, there's a devil. Devil attacks him. Jeez. And he has this, this guy's having a rough night. He, I can see why the necromancer thought he was going to die. He has this full-on, just drag-out fight with with the devil. Um, and when he defeats it, he doesn't kill the devil. He interrogates the devil. He's like, who sent you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The necromancer. It was the necromancer. Son of a bitch. So the next morning, he uh, he <laughs> he hands the devil over to the authorities, and he tells them, "I hired a necromancer. That necromancer said I was fated to die in three days unless I bought a charm from him. I did not buy the charm from him. I was attacked by three assassins." This one says the necromancer hired him. So the authorities take this very seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're handed a devil. Yeah. In that crazy story. Well, maybe I wouldn't believe it, but he did just hand us a devil. (laughs) I'm inclined to believe him now. So they they go find the necromancer and they interrogate him. They discover the truth of the matter, which is, as Mr. Yu foretold, (laughs) they put the... They put the necromancer to death. That's the end of that story. That is ironic. (laughs) (laughs) I love the irony of that. Just like, just the idea of this necromancer just trying to swindle people like, you're going to die. I'm going to make it happen. Well, but he knew that this would have been a good target for it because, one, he had a servant. Yeah. All right. That implies some wealth. And two, he had a servant he was willing to pay a doctor or necromancer to come heal. That's mm-hmm. probably not cheap. Mm-mm. So he's like, oh, this guy, I bet you if I scare him enough, I can get a lot of money out of him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a little foreshadowed a little bit by the fact that he was willing to pay someone to fix his servant. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, if he was a bad person, he would just let the servant die, get a new servant. Well, there's this sense of obligation in in Chinese culture right. when it comes to that kind of thing. Like, if you have family, if you have servants, employers, mm-hmm. employees, rather, you've got to take care of them. Yeah. And so, but, I mean, that extends, like, his, it's, it kind of, it foreshadows him as a righteous man. Mm-hmm. And so then when the necromancer tries to swindle him, he goes, well, I can save you from dying. He's like, no, you can't He's cheat like, fate. no, the righteous thing to do is to just die. Like, if that's going to be what it is. You know, that's the way, that's the way, that's the Tao. Let's do it. Um, And then it further exerts his righteousness in that, like, there's three varying levels of evil that assault him at night. Yeah. And he beats them all. Yeah. So, and even at the end, he doesn't kill the devil, even though he absolutely would be within his rights to do. He hands him over alive to the authorities. He said, no, I'm going to submit this to the proper authority, not my own. Yep. And he could have taken revenge on the necromancer, but he didn't. He let he let the law do that. I mean, he would have been it's a stand-up Chinese citizen. I mean, right I there. feel like he would have been in his rights to have just busted down the necromancer's door and killed him. That's right. But he proves that he's a better man than average for not. He's like, nah, I'm going to turn in this devil. He's he is showing that he is sort of the epitome of the the Chinese man. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick ad break, and we will be back with. The Stories of the Immortal Eight. Hi, this is Functionally Literate. Hope you've been enjoying listening. This episode is brought to you by me. I made this show. I'm Ryan. I'm broke. If you could donate a little money my way with a sponsorship or a product, like, I'll be a shill for money. Um... And I'm going to use that money with which to buy books. Because let me tell you, right now I'm checking stuff out of the library, and it's rough. You can email me at funk.lit.pod at gmail.com. That is F-U-N-C 
dot L-I-T dot P-O-D at gmail.com. You could also be a patron of this podcast. That's right. This podcast, Functionally Literate, we're going places. We have a Patreon now. You can give me a dollar. And in exchange, you will be able to listen to this podcast ad-free. That means right now, you don't have to listen to this bit. You can listen to the podcast uninterrupted. It just goes without me going on about things that you don't care about. Just for a buck. And that will increase in value every two weeks because there will be another ad-free episode. Additionally, if you'd like to just pitch a little money my way, like you don't, you're not interested in being a patron, you can uh, go to my PayPal, which is also in there. I made a bunklet PayPal. It's, it'll, it'll all be in the description. Links all, all the links in the description. Hope you enjoyed that ad. Zach went to go to a confirmation, and he has returned. I have returned. They have been confirmed. They are existing. So, where were we? Uh, we were about to do the Eight Immortals. The Immortal Eight, that's right. So, this is where I'm going to come clean with the audience about the nature of this episode. We did this before. Yes. We have discussed... Chinese myths once before now. <sighs> and I feel like it was so much better. It was a um, while ago. It was a while ago, and I don't remember it. Yeah, the thing is, it was fresh. Uh, it was fresh, fresh in our minds. But I did take pretty decent notes. I feel, actually, I feel more prepared to talk about it now. I feel that in a little bit, too. That's why I wanted, so, the way we're currently doing it, the lineup currently is... Hinduism, Buddhism, Chinese, Japanese. Mm -hmm. Before it was Chinese, Japanese, Jap Chinese, Japanese, Hinduism, Buddhism. Yeah, no, I, this order makes more sense. I think start with India. But it came from a place of ignorance. We didn't yeah. realize we, didn't we should have started with India. It wasn't until we started reading about Chinese and Japanese initially, and then everything was like, "Oh yeah, Buddhism too," and we're like, "Well, <laughs> fuck. shit, we should have read <laughs> Buddhism first." <laughs> That's our bad, India. We took for granted your influence on, on the Eastern, Eastern culture. world. So yeah, that's our bad. Chandragupta is a G. We acknowledge it now. <laughs> we our, are. We get a little more functionally literate every time we do this. It's not a plug. It's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> so eight immortals. Uh, they're people who attained the hidden wisdom, which right. now I understand to mean enlightenment. They mm -hmm. became enlightened. That's right. And became gods because they were enlightened. Something like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty dope. And it explains at the time, because the first time we did this, you'll recall, I asked you, what do you think the hidden, wi hidden wisdom is? What do you think is the answer to attaining the hidden wisdom? And I didn't know. And what I didn't realize I was asking was, how do I become enlightened? Yeah. Because when you become enlightened, you become immortal. Because you become a god when you die. In Chinese culture, that is how they interpreted Buddhism. That's right. Or at least when it comes to the immortal eight. Yeah. It's been, I'm sure it was interpreted a lot of different ways. Yeah. But it, the reason why I even have this in here is because... So I have to tell a story that was lost. So... Because I told the story of my experience with Chinese mythology, my attempt to cover this. Yeah. Do you remember what it was? Not exactly. So I started my new job yeah. at the high school, and I discovered that I have an employee ID number that I can use to check out books from the high school public library. That's right. That's a benefit I have. Now, that said, all the books are gauged towards high school kids. Yeah. There was one that they should get rid of. It was about uh, Egypt. Anyways, they didn't have anything about China mm -hmm. that was no good. It was no, for me. No yeah. good. That was my first attempt. Second attempt was the library. The library was also not super helpful. 
So I got was essentially a textbook, mm-hmm. um, and it was no good, just no good. And so then finally, out of desperation, I was like, can I borrow your book? <laughs> I do remember that, yeah. Which I've not needed to do before or since. Yeah. Just none of the libraries that I tried helped me. It's it's weird that that would be the hard thing to find. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, what the library did have wasn't what I was looking for. Because now I understand what we're looking for. We're looking for things that view it from the mythological and narrative perspective. Which, as it turns out, there's not a lot of that outside of the classical mythologies. Yeah. Which is frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's like, come on, society. Do I have to produce this product? <laughs> it it would take a very long it, time to do as so As it well. turns out, that's what functionally illiterate does sometimes. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully society appreciates that. Um, anyways, so the other thing was, you know, the Eight Immortals. Um, I was going somewhere with this. Oh, yeah. What the thing I read in the Chinese textbook mm-hmm. that I did see and why I wanted to focus on the Eight Immortals. It was because the they talked about foxes and incubus and succubi and like weird beliefs when it came to sex. Yeah. That I just felt like I had to mention. So in Chinese culture, it was believed and it, it was a it was a Taoist or like yin yang thing. Mm-hmm. What was he sorry, what remind me what's up with yin yang? Um, that we can get real deep on what yin not yang deep, is. just a, just um, real brief to, as a reference. Uh, yin is the feminine, yang is the masculine principle. There's you know good and evil. It's really just the a symbol of duality itself. And then Tao, the way, is the line between the two. Right, and so there was a balance of energy thing to do mm-hmm. with sex. When yep. so if regardless of which party you are, the male or female party, when you have sex, whoever comes first is taking energy from the other. That's how you get succubi and stuff. Then there's also foxes, which are shape-changing spiritual foxes that often turn into beautiful women. Mm -hmm. And so, like, it was common, I guess, in Chinese, ancient Chinese culture to accuse women of being foxes or devils. Only if they were hot and had a high sex drive. And <laughs> wanted to marry someone well off to do. Yeah. Well to do. How dare they? Correct me if I'm wrong if you're Chinese, but that is how I've interpreted what I've read. And it came from your culture, so that's not like a it's not a racist thing. <laughs> that's a thing that Americans are really sensitive about, especially if they're white, in case you're international. Yeah. We have international. Real touchy now. about racism. <laughs> <laughs> the Eight Immortals. This is the, that's why, because that was the transition. The page that was talking about the Eight Immortals was like, so yeah, there's that. And then they start talking about the Eight Immortals who don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, why'd you even bring it up then? Here are these guys that come at the same time. Yeah. Every time. Because uh, the other idea <laughs> that you could do with this is you could just have sex and be a selfish lover with a lot of people. Yeah. Right? Because the earlier you come before them, the more life energy you steal. That's right. So... The idea was if you didn't want to steal any life energy, you tried to come at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, we're prudes. Americans are prudes. This is now a sex podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it was saying the eight immortals don't do that. Uh, the eight immortals, people who attained the hidden wisdom. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment. So their leader was Shung Li Quan. He discovered the Philosopher's Stone, also known as the Golden Cinnabar, which mm-hmm. I looked that up. That is the ore from which mercury is derived. It is. You want Cinnabar to get mercury, mm-hmm. which I don't want. But. No, no, but it, I mean, having the good old Quicksilver was a valuable thing. So with his uh, Philosopher's Stone, he could turn Quicksilver to gold and lead to silver. That's pretty good. So therefore, he attained the Hidden Wisdom. Then you've got old Shang Go. He attained an immortality in primal times. He owned a white mule that could go a thousand miles a day and could be folded up and stored in a trunk. He inflated 
the mule when he needed it by sprinkling upon it water from his mouth. Just spitting on his mule? See, this is a thing I didn't understand, though. Is, this, is he spitting on it, or is he putting water in his mouth and then, like, spraying it on it? Right. I don't... I mean, technically, either way is spitting on it, but I just don't know. Is saliva the actual ingredient, or I is it water? I think we... We discussed how this is just a common thing. Water is life. Like, yeah, you know, you're bringing true. life yeah. to the folded up mule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Water it. Like the mule plant. Like a mule plant. A third person was Lu Wan or Lu Dung Bin, which means the mountain guest or guest of the rock. This, the book that I read about him referred to him a lot as guest of the rock. Mm-hmm. His name was Lee. So it's all those names, but then, like, his name was Li. Yeah. L-I. But the Empress Wu attempted to eradicate his family, so he and his immediate family changed his name. He wielded a flying sword. Kind of like Mjolnir. Zach had to yawn. I wonder... What did he do that the Empress was like, get rid of all of them? See, this is this is the thing. There's a lot of history I don't know. Yeah, there's this is the thing I've I struggled with with the Chinese mythology specifically is that there's so little detail in things that I specifically am interested in. Yeah. What did he do to the Empress? Where the fuck did that sword come from? I don't know. And why does it fly? I don't know. I want to know those things. Where did where did he get the mule? Where Luan? Did, yeah, where'd the mule come from? No, wait, no, that wasn't Luan. That was old Shango. Where'd you yeah. get the mule? I don't know. I, that, like, it's those things that I'm like, I want to know. Where did Luan get his flying sword? I don't know. And they just don't tell you. Then we've got Sao Guogui. That's the uncle of the state. That was his nickname. He was the younger brother of Empress Sao, hence the nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a very young age, he was obsessed and in love with attaining the hidden wisdom. He didn't care about anything else. Zheng Li Quan, the leader, helped him attain immortality. So because he was obsessed with it, yeah, this yeah, guy yeah. was like, all right. Yeah, I'll help you out. I'll help you with that. If uh, only it were that easy. Uh, fourth one we've got is Lan Sai Ho. Nothing is known of his true name, his time, nor his family. He was often seen in the marketplace, clad in a torn blue robe, and wearing only a single shoe, beating a block of wood, and singing the nothingness of life. That is the passage that I quoted. That's yeah, all they guy, said about him. That's just that's a trickster figure right there. That's chaos incarnate. <laughs> that's who that is. He's just the shit we don't understand about everything. Mm. Number six, Lee Tiaguai, or Lee with the Iron Crutch. Yeah, this guy's awesome. So he was an orphan. He was raised by his older brother and his older, uh, sorry, he was raised by his older brother and his sister-in-law. Yep. He was treated poorly by his sister-in-law, so he ran away to the hills where he attained the hidden wisdom. Mm-hmm. Do you remember why he has the iron crutch? I have the story right here. Oh, yeah. It's good. Yeah. I love that story. So he had the ability to not burn as long as nobody questioned it. That's right. <laughs> So, it's a very niche power. (laughs) He set his leg on fire to cook some food. Yeah, they were out of food. Yeah, his uh, brother and his sister-in-law and him, they were out of food. So, he set his leg on fire to cook some food and he told his family, he told them both, like, don't question it. Don't ask. Don't ask. Just let it happen. His sister-in-law questioned it. He was so pissed about it. He was like, if you'd said nothing. So he loses his leg. I would not have been wounded. (laughs) So he he took an iron poker and fashioned it into a crutch. He didn't lose his leg, but it was lame. He couldn't really walk with it. Yeah. So he was Lee with the iron crutch. It's good stuff. He, because he couldn't really walk, often would astral travel to the heavens to visit his master Lao Tzu. So this is where it gets interesting. Because... The body he's in now, although crippled, is not his original body. Mm-hmm. So he told his disciple, Wang, that if he didn't return in seven days to, to uh, burn his body, 
this was a common practice. He would be like, look, if I don't come back in a week, burn me. Yep. During one instance of this, on the sixth day, Wang received terrible news. Wang discovered his mother was on his deathbed, and he was the eldest son. So it was his responsibility to make arrangements for that. Mm-hmm. At the end of the sixth day, because he had to leave, he decided to burn his master's body because it had never been that long before. Yeah. Lee usually came back on the fourth or fifth day. Sometimes he'd come back in two days. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, that's a tough spot to be in. You're stuck between two obligations mm-hmm. and it's hard to tell which one's the more important of the two so he decided all right i'm burning my master's body i'm gonna go when lee came back his body he did was... he did hedge his bets he's like well lee's immortal <laughs> he, he missed the mark yeah you know lee came back on the beginning of the seventh day mm-hmm. and his body was gone he despaired for a bit he was now a ghost which you don't want to be we've be now discovered yeah, when it comes in buddhism the six realms of buddhism there's hell Animals, ghosts, humans, titans, and then gods. That's right. You don't want to be the ghost. You it's don't, below the human. And it's below human. Bad. Not great. So, you know, uh, in his despair, he possessed the first body he found. It was that of a crippled man who had recently died. Yeah. So he's still crippled. He still has an iron crutch. God. I mean, them's the breaks, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> You get a chance at a new body, and you're like, "Fuck, this guy limps too." And he didn't. He didn't blame Wang either. You know, no. He, he, Wang he, was put between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. That's that wasn't on him. He had to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So, and like I said, hedging your bets. You're like, "All right, well, this guy's immortal. He'll be fine." Yeah. You know, mom's dead. I gotta go take care of that. Number seven, Hang Shang Zi, nephew of the Confucian scholar Han Yu of the Tang Dynasty. He became a Taoist. He tried to deliver his wife from Earth three times. Three times he failed. His wife was not interested. The third time he flew up into the sky and was never seen again. Do you know what this guy did on the third attempt? Because that was what the focus of the story was. What was the third attempt? He turned into a beggar and sat on the side of the road and begged to his wife. And his wife was like, I don't have any money. And he was like, he's like, please give me money. Marry me. And she was like, I'm not going to marry you. I'm already married. And he was like, no, your husband is in heaven. Come with me to heaven so you can see him again. And she was like, no, get off of me. And started beating him with her handbag. (laughs) And so he's like, you're never going to see your husband again. And flew away. Yeah. (laughs) So not only did she have no idea what was happening. She never saw her husband again. No. Now, see, what were the first two attempts, though? I don't know. They don't discuss that. I imagine it was, you know, more rational. Yeah. I imagine. You know, more like, hey, there's something about me I can't tell you about. Right. Something like that. So, uh, yeah, that's the story of Hang Shang Z. <laughs> what do you Are think? You, I feel like... I don't know. I mean, it seems like a, a no win, you know, because like she's staying faithful to her marriage by being like, no, I'm not going to marry you, you bum. Yeah. You know, so I don't know why that's why she's being punished. I for may that. be misremembering exactly how the conversation went, but I remember Maybe. him like basically making a pass at her. Yeah. And her being like, no, I'm married. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that doesn't seem like it would be punishable. But, but no, that punishable thing was him telling her a true statement. And her not believing That's, him. That's, yeah, yeah, he said, I'll take you to heaven to see your husband. And she was like, go away. Yeah. But I think we all fail that test. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, why would if you some believe? rando came up to me and was like, I'll take you to heaven to see your grandpa, I'd be like, sir, there are institutions for people like you that can help. Do I need to call somebody? Right. <laughs> Last immortal eight of the eight. Ho Shan Gu, the only immortal woman of the eight. She was a peasant's daughter. She was badly mistreated by her stepmother, but she loved her stepmother anyway. Mm, this is like a better Cinderella. Yeah. Uh, Grandfather Du delivered her to heaven one day while she was cooking rice. She was still holding the rice spoon mm-hmm. when she was carried up to heaven. 
It became her job to sweep up flowers at the southern gate of heaven. Not a bad gig. Yeah. I mean, it's flowers. It probably smells nice. Every time you sweep, you get a nice new rush of fragrance. That might get sickening after a while. But I get they're, they're flowers in heaven, though. It's so heaven. they wouldn't be. They'd be perfect it, flowers. It would, they probably would be perfect flowers. Yeah. 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 So... There's this there's a story about the immortal eight here. There was a man also named Wang. Different Wang. Different Wang. Actually, I might be misremembering that. Could you fact check me while I tell this story? I assume you do not have it bookmarked. No, but it's in the index. The immortal eight, or if not the index, the table of contents. So, this guy Wang, he was a beggar, didn't have a pound to his name, or a penny, or any money, really. And he he wanted to become immortal. He wanted to be free of, you know, the clutches of his Latin life. He saw, or rather he heard, and then saw Lee with the Iron Crutch. And then... All of the other immortal eight go past Lee, because Lee's slower. He he decides this is his chance. He's gonna appeal to Lee with the iron crutch. He 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 prostrates himself before Lee. Yeah. And is like, help me attain immortality. And you know, Lee at first is like, get off, get off. Go and away. He's slowing him up. And so the other seven go check on him and they're like, What's going on? This beggar's asking me. To help for help to attain immortality, and their leader, what was his name? Their leader, Shung Li Quan, decides, let's give him a chance. So they fly him off, like immediate. They just grab him and they f- they take him up high into the sky and fly to this. I forget what it's called. It's in there. They fly him to this holy site. It's a cliff mm-hmm. on the easternmost shore of Japan. And they tell him, leap into the water and you will attain immortality. And then one by one, each of the immortal eight leaps into the water until it's only Lee with the iron crutch remaining. And, and, the guy, and Lee's like, all right, go on then. And he's like, I can't. I can't do that. I can't jump into the water. I can't do that Lee shakes his head okay gives the guy exactly as much money as he needed to get back home yep by the time he gets back he is just as penniless and poor so I looked it up uh, it never actually says the name okay. of the man it just it just refers to him as the man I took creative liberties by giving him a name well I like the name Wang so that's his name a lot of Wangs out there <laughs> I just I He's decided yeah I decided you know what? There are lots of Wangs out there. They're both going to be named Wang. That's right. Yeah, that's... So... Now, the, the cliff that's in Japan, right? They flew east. It's a specific one, and I remember you said something it's, important it's, about the space last time we discussed this. Ponglai Shan. Yeah. The ghost mountain by the eastern sea. Yep. It's interesting that it's a ghost mountain that makes it, you know, otherworldly, spectral. It's a it's a thing not of this world. This beggar, it being in the east, was you know, terrified of dying. His morning beginning, the realm of the gods. So, so I think what we're encountering here now that Buddhism is leaving India, we're encountering less of a certain belief in reincarnation. Because the only kind of person that would kill themselves like that in an attempt to become immortal is someone that believes that even if they don't, they'll be reborn. Well, but if we're to equate becoming an immortal with gaining enlightenment, you could also read that as an attachment to earthly things. They bring him sure. to a cliff on the ghost mountain by the eastern sea, mm-hmm. and they say, jump off. And you'll be one of us. But if he jumps off and he's one of them, he's no longer a part of Earth. Mm-hmm. 
And as we had learned in Buddhism, those desires are very difficult to get rid of. Yeah. So this guy said, no, I don't want to get rid of that. And what did he I get? I like my material things. He got exactly enough to get him right back where he fucking started. Yeah. I want to go on a little bit of a tangent. Okay. There's a book. It's not Swords and Sorcery, but it's so good. It's called The First 15 Lives of Harry August. You've told me of this book before. I don't think it's on a retained recording. So this book is about a man, Harry August, who, when he dies, is reborn as himself. The same time, like, the events of his birth play out the exact same way. But starting around two and ending around five or six, he regains the memories of all of his past lives. That would be traumatic. Indeed. <laughs> that's why it's not all at once, and that's why he doesn't remember any of his time from when he was a baby. <laughs> it's when his body is old enough to handle it, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's about his first 15 lives. And he, he talks about it in such a glib sarcastical way because he remembers everything yeah but it turns out there's people like him that they don't remember everything eventually the human mind there's only so much it can remember mm -hmm. and so there's a lot they'll remember and sometimes there'll be like sh shadows of things they'll remember because you know it's the repetitive cycle of life yeah as they remember it through their lifetime, because they don't get to see much more unless they find a way to really enhance their lifespan. Yeah. Harry August made it to 9-11 one time because he was born in the 19-teens. Hmm. I see. He would have been real old. Mm -hmm. He says he usually dies around 67 of the same thing. He always gets the same disease that kills him. Well, if you're genetically predisposed. Exactly. It's good odds. Yeah. And so it's common that you get committed in your second life. Mm -hmm. And in your third life, you seek spiritual whatever. This guy, in his third life, traveled the whole world, tried out all of the religions. Fourth life, he was still here. Decided to go into science. It's a really fascinating book. Mm -hmm. Because it tackles this whole idea of reincarnation and what that would look like. Yeah. But from a different perspective, because the reason why he didn't stick with Buddhism is because he asked the Buddhists after he'd been there for a while, what about people reborn as themselves? Yeah. And it was a really fascinating discussion that, well, he summed it up. He was like, I believe I, several hundred years early, not several hundred years early, he said, I believe I several decades earlier spawned for the first time in Buddhism a chronological conversation about reincarnation. Because for them, time is a wheel. It's mm -hmm. cyclical. You don't do the same wheel. Right. You do something similar, eons in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and so there's... In these myths, we're getting... A, it's a mix of culture. Like, Buddhism is a huge influence on Indeed. it. Indeed. But it's, it's not... If Buddhism, as it sprung out of Hinduism, it's Buddhism meets Taoism. Yeah. And meets Confucianism. Yeah. And so it's the Buddhist ideals and philosophy that clash with this uh, philosophy of, of service to the group, community, action, and identity. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the Buddhism in, in India is very individualistic. Mm -hmm. The Buddhism in China becomes very community-focused. Yeah. Where... You know, the Dharma isn't what can I do as the individual um, that's the most appropriate for me. It's what can I do as a member of this group that is the most appropriate for the group. Which contrasts quite a bit from in more Indian-style Buddhism because they believed that doing good deeds wasn't necessarily the best path. Right. Because if you're giving your good karma to others... You are delaying your path to enlightenment. It's certainly a very good thing, but so long as you do it, you will not attain enlightenment. Yeah. Right. Which I find very interesting. It's like, okay, so if you want to do good, you could just stay here and just keep doing good. Mm -hmm. But but like core doctrine of Buddhism is like, you know, and I say core as in like, you know, 
original, like fundamentalist Buddhism. Yeah, would be the best way to put it, from what I understand. Yeah, no, that's they're like no attain enlightenment for yourself. I think that paints it interestingly as doing good things for others as the ultimate self sacrifice. It's just a different moral view. Well, because well, by doing good things for others, you're intentionally putting off your own reward. Yeah. So you're sacrificing enlightenment for them. And there are definitely people that would be like, nah, screw that. I'm going to do what's best for others. Yeah. I think maybe if I were to speculate philosophically speaking, that is um, a way for people to... St- it's because it's still connected to one of those roots of evil, mm-hmm. right? I think greed, possibly. Yeah. Not delusion and not hatred. So I feel like it would only have to be greed. There's something greedy about wanting to do good deeds so much for others. Because that in itself is obsessive. Mm-hmm. I mean, so then, since we're going down a philosophical route, we get into more of the motive of why you're doing it. So I think... If you're doing good deeds for others because it gets you to nirvana or because it gets you to heaven or because people will like you for it, if you're doing the good deed for the reward of the good deed, that's not good. But if you do the good deed because it is a good deed. And you just want to do good. Just just because you're like, well, it's good. It's good to do. That's what you should do. And you do it without consideration of the outcome then that's good mm-hmm. and so i i find that it's interesting that buddhism sort of juxtaposes those because it's like you can do the good thing because it's the good thing but then you never get the ultimate good or you can do the thing that's good for you and you'll eventually get the ultimate good thing for you good for goodness sake yeah but and so there's a clear cultural shift once mm-hmm. you take Buddhism to China because they're very communal in that yeah. way. They're like, no, what's the best thing for others? Yeah. The people that do it that way get enlightenment. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and you see that in the Guan Yu story that we talked about where, I mean, he makes this, this ritual pact mm-hmm. with the man that's the rightful emperor, right? So he's, he is the living symbol of authority of mm-hmm. the state. And he's pledged himself in life and in death to it. And he becomes enlightened. Yeah. You know, like he dies a heroic death, becomes a ghost. Not good. No. And then a Buddhist monk enlightens him. So he does the best thing for others, which is to help the rightful authority of the state. But, you know, by extension, the cosmos, like heaven itself, Mm -hmm. if the the earthly realm is to be a mirror of it and he is the true emperor, then he is the, the incarnate of the king of heaven then that is the ultimate good that's the best for everybody we're going to stop the four other imposter factions we're going to put the rightful emperor on the throne and then everything will be better for everybody oh yeah that reminds me we were talking about so i didn't mention in the buddhism episode but like you know during the break when you were doing the confirmation um i mentioned to matt and to chris our sound guy i mentioned to them how there's actually a time in history when Buddhists were very warlike, mm-hmm. specifically in China and Japan, right, Chris? Yeah. <clears throat> there are some wild pictures of them because, as I understood it, it was an aggressive defense. You know, they were yeah. they became a warrior. There was a, there was developed in China a warrior caste of Buddhists who existed to defend their rights to live yeah. the way they well, wanted because everybody to wanted to kill all the buddhists they were so ethical it offended people yeah well that's like uh if if you read into japanese history you know the first domino that leads to the unification of japan as a country is nobunaga mm-hmm. and nobunaga despised buddhists and he really mistreated them i mean it was bad and so the buddhists started taking up like gorilla arms they would go to mountain villages and incite people against him because they're like he's killing us for no reason we're talking about chinese culture though yeah i know if you want to see some warlike buddhists get into japanese history they did not play around although they did ultimately lose it took massive concerted effort 
to do so. Well, maybe we can get into that a little bit in the Japanese mythology episodes. I know we're going to record those immediately after this. That's right. We're going to, for us, it'll be like 20 minutes. For you guys, a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do we got anything else to talk about? Uh, no. See you guys. Bye. Bye.